Hello and a very warm welcome to you, our dear listener. This is the new life program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. We have a great show lined up for you. Thanks for joining us. I am your host, Monica Kamokwa. Glad that you are tuned in. To start off the show is Lydia Aching. We'll be talking about love the way Jesus loves you on family life. Then later on, Ian Muse will join us in in the Bible segment with the topic, The First and Second Adam. But first, let's get the song, Shout to the Lord by Gloria Singers. Stay tuned. Shout to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord. Shout to the Lord. Shout to the Lord, and His holy arm, and give the victory. Shout to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord. Shout to the Lord.
Welcome back, dear listener. That was Shout to the Lord by Gloria Singers. You're listening to the new live program coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Here comes Lydia Aching with more on Love the Way Jesus Loves You. Stay tuned and be on the know. Dear listener, welcome to today's Family Life program. I'm your presenter, Lydia Aching. Today we'll talk about love the way Jesus loves you. How much do you believe that Jesus loves you? Are you important to him? Do you sense his love for you? Do you believe he made sacrifices for you? Do you believe he would die for you? Oh, wait a minute, he did. What about your spouse? Do you believe that Jesus loves your spouse? Is he or she important to him? Do you believe he made sacrifices for him or her? Do you believe he would die for your spouse? Oh, wait a minute, he did. These aren't trick questions. They're questions to help remind you of the love that Jesus has for you and for your spouse. The next questions are, do you love Jesus? Is he your Lord? Not just Savior, yes, that's important too, but also your Lord where you're willing to love as he loves and live your life, especially within your marriage, in a way that reflects his heart. When others see how you treat your spouse, can they see Christ working within you? If you love Jesus, and if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, especially your spouse, whom you pledged to love. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. That is the challenge that is before us when we claim to love Christ, and we marry to love as Christ did. Brito M. Bachmans of FamilyMinistries.org wrote something to consider. A week before his wedding, the groom-to-be asked his best man, How much does a marriage license cost? He replies, $30 for now and all the money you make the rest of your life. There are people who view marriage more as an expense than an investment. They don't realize that the output depends on the input. Unfortunately, people invest far more energy and time into their work, their properties, and leisures than they spend on their marriage. Yet the health of their marriage can depend on how much they're willing to invest in the cause and the cost of loving their spouse on a daily basis. Are you revealing and reflecting the love of Christ within your marriage? Do others see the love of Christ being lived out within your marriage? Does your spouse see Jesus in you? 
even if he or she isn't living for Christ, are you standing in the way blocking them from being able to see him if they have a mind to? If you really want your spouse to see Jesus in you, as you seek to love in a similar way that Jesus loves, you have to genuinely put into practice an attitude of becoming more like Christ in everything you do. This is not a simple one-time event. It is an everyday struggle. It's not easy to act like Jesus in every situation. In fact, it's notably difficult. We live in a world where it's much easier to do what feels good or take the easy way out. But becoming more like Jesus involves sacrificial love. It takes a servant's heart. It means forgiving when it's not easy to forgive. And it takes a concerted effort toward humility and self-forgetfulness. It also sometimes takes an attitude adjustment, which we all need at times. Dr. Gary Chapman wrote something important on this in the thrivingfamily.com article, How to Truly Love Your Spouse. He said, One of the great tragedies of our culture is that we have equated love with warm emotional feelings. In fact, these warm romantic feelings are the result of love, not the essence of love. This is why love can be commanded, as in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And love can be taught and learned, as noted in Titus chapter 2, verse 4, where the older women are instructed to teach the younger women to love their husbands. God doesn't command emotions, but he often commands attitudes and behavior. The good news is that whatever God commands, he enables us to do. In the early days of my marriage, my wife and I were fairly miserable. We both wondered if we had married the wrong person. In my desperation, I said to God, I don't know what else to do, and I am asking for your help. As soon as I prayed that prayer, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees, washing the feet of his followers. I sensed God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You don't have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. I knew what he said was true. At that time, my attitude toward my wife was, Look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you will listen to me, we'll have one. She wouldn't listen, so I blamed her for our poor marriage. God gave me a new perspective. The problem was not her, but my attitude. I said, Lord, forgive me. With all my study in Greek, Hebrew, and theology, I missed the whole point of love. Please give me the attitude of Christ toward my wife. Let me see her as one whom you love, and let me be your agent for loving her. In retrospect, it was the greatest prayer I've ever prayed regarding my marriage because God changed my attitude. I confess that I prayed a similar prayer a number of years ago. I assumed that if my husband and I were both Christians, we naturally had what is called a Christian marriage. And because we had a Christian marriage, God would see and also understand that it's the man he gave me that was causing all the problems we were having, just as Adam blamed his wife for his own sin. I was wrong. Just because we were both Christians, it doesn't mean that we had a Christian marriage. I came to better understand this when I read something that Drs. David and Jan Stoop wrote on this issue. A marriage doesn't become Christian just because two Christians marry. What makes a marriage truly Christian is that we as a couple are seeking to restore in our lives part of what was lost in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. We not only strive to become more whole as an individual, 
We want our marriage to be more of what God intended marriage to be, a complete, satisfying union of two people with God, intimacy together with each other and together with God. Unless our search for spiritual intimacy with God is part of our behavior as a couple, there is little else that distinguishes a marriage as being truly Christian. That's the problem we had going for us. We both claim to love Christ, but that doesn't mean that we always showed each other love as Jesus does. There was a disconnect. We showed love in a way that made sense to us, not necessarily God's way. I came to realize that oftentimes I treated Steve in disrespectful ways. I said things to Steve and acted toward him in ways that I sure wouldn't have if Jesus were in the room. Oh, wait a minute, he was. I just didn't realize it. God helped me to see that Steve's actions and what I interpreted as to how they affected me didn't justify my acting disrespectful. My words, the way I contentiously said them, plus my prideful motives were not Christ-like. I asked for forgiveness and prayed that God would help me to treat my husband as he would have me. What's amazing is that the more respectful and loving I was towards Steve, giving grace when I should and speaking the truth in love when I should, the more his actions eventually changed in positive ways too. Please know that I'm not saying this prayer formula will always bring about a positive change in our spouse. It may or it may not, but that isn't the point. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's no if clause in there. If my spouse acts in ways that I think he or she should, and then I will be an imitator of God and love as Christ loves. We want to ask you, are you showing your spouse love the way that Jesus loves you? If you are, we encourage you to continue. We celebrate with you. If you aren't, however, we pray that God will help you to change in the ways you should and pray with all our hearts that you will. Ask the Lord to reveal to you the attitudes and actions you need to work on and change. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This material is provided by Marriage Missions International. Until next time, God bless you. For those of you who are just joining us, this is the New Life Program with me, Monica Kamoko, your host, coming to you live from the Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Always a pleasure to have you with us. You haven't missed a lot. If you wish to drop comments, suggestions, or questions, do so through the producer, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 422276, code 00100, Nairobi, Kenya, or email us at awrnairobi at eku.adventist.org. Now that that is off the way, here is a song, HIV, by Gloria Singers. 
You're listening to the New Life program, coming to you live from the heart of Nairobi. This is Adventist World Radio, the voice of hope. Don't change the channel. More trouble. A-I-D-S. H-I-V. More trouble. A-I-D-S. H-I-V. My dear listener, thanks for choosing our station. We are because you are. And now, please join me as I welcome Ian Mose for the Bible segment. His message is the first and second Adam. Be blessed. Greetings, dear listener, and welcome to our study today. The topic of our study is the first and second Adam. I am your presenter, Ian Musse. The first Adam passed on the result of his sinful experience through physical birth weakness, sin, and death. The second Adam passed on the results of his sinless experience through spiritual birth partaking of the divine nature, victory, and eternal life. All the effects of the first Adam's failure are completely counteracted by the second Adam. Please don't miss the point that one can join the new family only through a spiritual birth. Through faith in Christ, a new creation takes place, lifting man out of the hopeless, carnal state of the family of Adam. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 the change of families constitutes one of the least understood blessings of the Christian experience. It is not a theoretical or mystical transaction with no practical results. Just as the transformation of nature is dramatically real, so the privileges of the new family are also real. One of the hardest things for the newborn Christian to accept is the total change of position, authority and ownership under the new family arrangement. They are now eligible for all the riches and advantages of the children of God. Incredible promises are included in the new spiritual relationship. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17. It is easy to understand why the human mind boggles at this concept. We tend to probe for hidden reservations and secret meanings in verses like this. A joint heir is one who holds equal rights to all the family estate. We ask ourselves how it is possible to become sudden heirs of such unlimited wealth. From abject poverty we now hold title to the universe. The holdings of God include galaxies and island universes in space. By faith we try to grasp hold of the reality. Jesus and I share and share alike in all the spiritual riches of the Father. Whatever he gets, we also receive. Paul describes the boundless resources of the spirit-filled life in these words. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19. Who can comprehend such language? The great, loving God who made us, 
and who gave up his only son to die for us, now wants us to have everything his son has and also everything that he has. Along with the staggering assets of a king, we also actually inherit the family name and the family resemblance. We even begin to look our new father and elder brother and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 In the beginning, Adam was made in the image of God and was called a son of God. In Genesis we read, In the likeness of God made him. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 to 3 Like father, like son, Adam looked like God, but the resemblance was lost through sin. So Adam's son did not look like God. He looked like Adam. But under the new birth, man begins to lose his Adamic features and to look like the one who created him, Jesus. Is this resemblance real or imagined? Does God create only illusions to make it seem that man is being restored to the divine image? Or does he powerfully provide for the change to take place? There is a theological debate as to whether God's righteousness is only accounted to man or whether it is truly imparted as well. Those who feel that man is only accounted righteous do not believe that he can really overcome sin and live a holy life, even in Christ. But Paul's words are clear. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 Along with the family likeness, this new spiritual birth brings deliverance from the second death which was inevitable under the Adamic nature. Christ did not change the first death penalty for Adam's failure under the first probation, but he did abolish the second death for all those who received him under the second probation. This was made possible only because he submitted to suffer the horrible penalty of the second death in the place of man. He became sin for us and voluntarily accepted the punishment which sin demands. On the cross, with no ray of hope from the Father, Jesus was enveloped in the darkness of a billion lost souls. He tasted death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 Was it easy for Jesus to have such an experience? Was it easy for the Father to withdraw from his beloved Son and treat him as though he was guilty of the most atrocious blasphemy and crime? Only one man in the world has come here to understand the intense suffering of the father and the son in that situation. That man, Abraham, gave up his only son also and became the first human to share the agony of the cross. Paul wrote that the scripture, foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus also recognized that Abraham had special revelations on the atonement. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. John chapter 8 verse 56 To understand how this Old Testament patriarch had such prophetic insight into the work of the Messiah, we must go back to his experience on Mount Moriah. Because he had initially failed to believe that God could give him a son from Sarah's dead womb, Abraham was subjected to another test concerning life from the dead. God told him to slay his only son Isaac on an altar. The account of the lonely journey to Mount Moriah is one of the most moving stories in the sacred word. 
Abraham had no doubt about the validity of the order. He was a friend of God and had learned to recognize his voice. There was no way for Abraham to comprehend the reason for this bizarre command. The promise had been confirmed repeatedly that Isaac was the seed through whom the Messiah would come. Now he was asked to take the life of that child of his old age through whom the world would be blessed and redeemed. How could the Savior come through Isaac if he was slain on the altar? By the time father and son reached the base of the mountain, Abraham's faith had resolutely claimed God's resurrection power. He said to the servants, I and the Lord will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Genesis chapter 22 verse 5 This time, there was no weak faltering over the seeming impossibility of the promise. No resurrection from the dead had ever occurred, but Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promise concerning Isaac's seed. As Abraham lifted the knife over his submissive son, he was meeting the most severe test ever faced by a human being. It would have been terrible enough to take his son's life, but with one stroke of the knife, he was about to destroy the only hope of salvation for himself and every person who would be born. No one except Jesus would ever hold the destiny of a world in his hand as Abraham did in that moment. It was more than the test of fatherly affection. By killing Isaac, Abraham was depriving the world of a savior. The knife was at his own throat also. God's unfailing word had assured him that no Messiah could be born without Isaac. Do you begin to see into the fiery crucible of Abraham's test? No wonder Jesus spoke of Abraham being able to see his day. Listener, now may the God of peace make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was your presenter, Ian Muse, and have a blessed time. Thank you for staying tuned throughout the show. I hope you are blessed just like I was. Don't forget to send us your views, comments, or questions about the show to the producer, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 42276, code 00100, Nairobi, Kenya. Email us at awrnairobi at eku.adventist.org. Until next time, when we meet again, I have been your host, Monica Kamokwa. God bless you abundantly. Amazing sickness that can never heal. Lazy eye, immortal help is all you all to lose. This CD, distraction holds your way beyond control. Surrender, surrender all you have to Jesus Christ.